it is time to continue our worship through the preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to join me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians. Now, somebody has messed me up here. I'm going to trip over this. Hopefully not. No. Just going to have, just not going to have as much room to walk around for the next few weeks. That's all right. But Galatians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 25, and we're going to go down to verse 10 of chapter 6. So, one more week after this week in our study of the book of Galatians. I hope you have enjoyed going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, one more week after this, and then uh, we'll get into something else afterwards. But for today, beginning in verse 25, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, I thank you as always. For your word, it is holy, it is precious, and it is absolutely true. And as I stand here to preach it, to explain it, to illustrate it and apply it, I pray that your spirit would come and allow me to be a man who, who rightly divides it and explains it and applies it and illustrates it. Father, I cannot do this in my own strength. I don't even want to try to do this in my own strength. And so I beg that your spirit would come and allow me to preach in the power of your spirit, recognizing, Lord, that I am fallen, I am broken. But yes, you can even speak through a fallen and a broken vessel such as myself. I pray for my hearers and myself. I pray, Lord, that we would all have ears to hear the truth of your word today. I pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged in areas where we need to be strengthened and encouraged and that we would be challenged, perhaps, in areas where we need to be challenged. Above all, Lord, I pray that you will be glorified through the preaching of your word here this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I was at a Christmas parade, so it was, it was about this time of year, 
And I'm standing there and I'm watching everyone just go, going by in the parade route. And then a group of cadets from a local military academy, they, they came marching by. And I remember being just kind of awestruck and, and really just think, thinking, man, that, that really is awesome because these cadets are marching in perfect unison in harmony with one another, in lockstep, you know, arms and legs moving together. It, it was just really just kind of a beautiful thing to behold, really, and to watch. And so I share that with you this morning because Paul uses uh, similar imagery in verse 25. You'll join me in your Bibles there. And he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In that phrase, keep in step with, it actually comes from a military word or term in the Greek. And it's the idea of soldiers marching together in perfect unison in a parade, it lockstep like this. That's exactly the image that is being conveyed. And so Paul says here, like soldiers on the parade ground, he's commanding the Christians in Galatia, and by extension us here today, to march in lockstep with the Spirit. Now this is important because this is coming on the heels of a similar command that Paul gave at the beginning of the section last week. Last week he said, you guys need to walk by the Spirit. It's a little different than this one, but it's similar. And just for the benefit of those who were not here, I'll try to explain briefly what we talked about last week because it pertains to this week as well. When Paul said last week, walk by the Spirit, you know, we talked about, well, what does that mean? Is walking by the Spirit something mysterious? Is there some secret knowledge to walking by the Spirit? No. We said walking by the Spirit requires a conscious decision minute by minute, day by day, to submit to the Spirit rather than the flesh. Because as Paul explained in the previous section, and maybe it's something you had never heard of before, you can go back and read it. If you don't believe me, you can go back and read it, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 5. But Paul explained that every Christian is involved in this conflict between the flesh on one shoulder and the Spirit on the other shoulder. And Paul said, you can't even do what you want to do. You're only going to do one of two things. You're either going to do what the flesh wants you to do, the old man, sinful desires, or you're going to do what the Spirit of God wants you to do. You have to make a choice. And we talked about the choice to walk by the Spirit then is a conscious decision to crucify oneself, to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus Christ, to die to yourself every single day. And when you do that, then you will walk by the Spirit. So that was last week. Now he follows up that command with this command. Now keep in step with the Spirit. So now that you have decided to walk by the Spirit, Paul says, that's great. Now you need to continue walking by the Spirit. Now you need to march in tandem, in harmony, in unison with the Spirit. And what follows in the rest of this section really are three action steps that Paul wants these Christians in Galatia to adopt. He says, hey, if you're going to keep marching in harmony and unison with the Spirit, you need to adopt these three items right here. Now, I would say that there are many more things that we can do to keep in step with the Spirit and perhaps that we should do, but these three items are very specific to the situation that's going on in these churches in Galatia. So we're going to look at these three this morning, and we're going to see how we can apply them to our lives today some 2,000 years later. So 
How can we keep in step with the Spirit? Item number one, Paul says, be humble in verse 26. Hey, Christian, just be humble. Always remember that. In verse 26, Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the word for conceited, that word means to harbor illusions about oneself which are empty and vain. This is describing the Christian who thinks way more highly of themselves than they ought to. Have you ever known a Christian like that? Maybe you haven't, but I have. And so uh, allow me to illustrate it. By now you realize, some of you know that this is true. I have this coffee mug at home that says, watch out, you might end up in my sermon. (laughs) Knew a guy once. It was actually a year ago. We were having this casual conversation. Then out of nowhere, he says to me, and if I'm lying, I'm dying. God, you can strike me down right now. I'm not. He says, my family, speaking of his family, my family, we're the only ones in our church that really celebrate Christmas the right way. I said, really? That's pretty amazing considering I'm the pastor of the church that you're talking about. So at first, I was a little taken back. I was like, man, I can't believe you just said that. But then as I thought about it, I was like, actually, you know what? This is pretty typical for this person. This this person is known to make such statements, to think way more highly of himself than he ought to. Beloved, in my opinion, there is nothing worse in the world than a conceited Christian, someone who thinks way more highly of themselves than they ought to. Someone who thinks that they get it right when everyone else gets it wrong. The moment you think that about yourself, church, is the moment that you are out of step with the Spirit. Now, Paul goes on and he mentions provoking one another. So to provoke means to challenge someone to a contest. And this is true in my experience as well. Uh, Christians who tend to think highly of themselves, who are arrogant and pompous and conceited, Usually, they're, they're so sure of their superiority that they constantly challenge other Christians to argue with them. By the way, this would be very true of the young man that I just mentioned to you. Almost every conversation that you have with him devolves into some theological debate or argument that ultimately almost always involves some second or third order theological issue. Walter, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, think of this. Okay, we have first order theological issues. These are issues that we hold tightly to with a a closed fist. We we hold on to these things. Yes, we are willing to fight for these things, these first order issues, fight in a Christian way, in a God-honoring way, but these are things that are worth fighting for. So, such as the virgin birth of Jesus, Merry Christmas, The death of Jesus on the cross is a sacrifice for your sin. His resurrection from the grave. The divinity of Jesus. Jesus as the only way of salvation. These are first order issues. And yeah, we're going to fight about these things if we have to, if we must. But then there's a whole host of other theological issues over here. Second and third order issues in which Christians of goodwill can agree to disagree on. But a lot of times with the person that I'm speaking of and other people like him, they'll get into these theological debates over these second and third order issues. And and basically, they'll be of the belief, hey, if you don't agree with me on these things, then you're not really a true Christian. They may not come right out and say it, but that's just kind of the attitude that comes out with them. 
Beloved, let me remind you of something very important. God does not save us for the purpose of engaging in endless theological debates. I believe that is true. God has told us very clearly the things that we are supposed to know. That Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He was raised to life again. And by faith in his death and his resurrection, I can receive forgiveness of sin, the promise of everlasting life. God has told us very, very clearly the things we are absolutely supposed to know. The purpose of our salvation is not to engage in these endless debates over second and third order issues. Ultimately, the purpose of our salvation is that we would grow in Christ's likeness. That we would adopt the mind of Christ. That we would be humble like Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2 verse 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't think too highly of yourself, Paul says, but consider others higher than yourself. And then he goes on in that beautiful Philippians passage to explain how Christ is the supreme example of humility. He goes on to say that Jesus didn't consider his divinity as something to exploit to his own advantage. If anyone ever had a reason to be conceited, it's Christ Jesus, the creator of the world, the owner of it all. If anyone ever had a reason to look down on the human race and say, you're a bunch of fools, look how stupid you are, it was him. But in humility, he got up off of his throne in the glory and perfection of heaven and came to this earth, taking on human flesh. This is a a real and true humbling of himself and and living a perfect and a sinless life and going to the cross and dying a, a death that was the most humiliating death possible known to the human race at that time, at least. But that wasn't the end of the story. Then he died, he was buried, then he was raised to life again. And then Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he reminds us of all of that. And then he says, that still wasn't the end of the story. Then he was exalted back to where he started, back on the throne of heaven. Let me explain it this way, then I'll move on. All right. Jesus, the life and the ministry of Jesus, is a living, breathing example of what the Bible teaches from cover to cover, from the book of Genesis to the book of Maps and everywhere in between, which is that the way up is down, that we are to be humble always and forever, that God exalts the humble and he lowers or humbles the prideful or the proud, right? So we want to be humble as Jesus Christ was humble. The way of the world, the way of the flesh is to exalt oneself, is to think too highly of yourself. So when we walk in humility, right, then God will do the exalting. So if you want to keep in step with the Spirit, just be humble. Secondly, Paul says, be merciful, And this begins in verse 1, and it goes down to verse 5. And you may notice, Walter, the word merciful doesn't show up anywhere here, but I'm going to try to explain to you what I mean by be be merciful. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So first of all, I just want to point out to you the word brothers. And that word can also be translated as brothers and sisters. It means both. But beloved, here's something really important that we need to remember. This word reminds us that the church is a family. We are a family, right? Somebody say amen. 
What do families do? What do earthly families do? Well, families typically look after one another. Families care for one another. Families care for one another through thick and thin. The old saying is blood is thicker than water, right? And so you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my aunt, you're my uncle, you're my father, you're my mother. You know what? You're family, and it doesn't really matter what you, what you do. Ultimately, I'm going to be there to love you and to love on you. The church is supposed to be like that as well. And beloved, we as a family, a church family, we are held together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And lest we forget, His blood is far superior, far greater, far thicker, and far superior to any human blood flowing through your veins or mine. And His blood binds us together through thick and thin. That's what Paul ultimately is getting at here. When a brother falls into sin, hey, we need to be there to support them and walk with them through this. So I'll talk more about that in just a minute. Paul mentions a specific issue that is testing the family bond of these churches. How does the church family respond when a brother or sister is caught in any transgression? How does the church respond when a brother or sister falls victim to the flesh. That's the issue. Now you'll notice Paul says that those who are spiritual should seek to restore those who fall. Well, who in the world are the spiritual? Are these the, the super Christians in the crowd? Are there any super Christians in the crowd? Good. There are no super Christians in the crowd, myself included. If you think you're a super Christian, then you need to go back to point number one, right? Be humble. So the spiritual are not the super Christians, all right? The, the spiritual is the opposite of the prideful person. And here's why this is important. We'll talk more about this in just a minute as well. The self-righteous, prideful Christian, he's unaware of his sin. But the spiritual Christian is the opposite. He is well aware of his own weaknesses and, and failings. And because of that, he is equipped to do what Paul is calling them to do, which is to restore a fallen brother or sister. Now, here's the thing, church. Restoration should always, always, always be the goal when a brother or sister falls into sin. It's always the goal is restoration. This word for restoration, it means to, to repair a, a, a wall that had maybe uh, been destroyed or mend a fishing net that had been broken. That's what the word means. And that's the goal. Whenever someone in our family falls victim to sin, it is to restore them. And notice another word here. It is the word gentle. The method of restoration should always be gentle, not harsh, not cruel, not shaming, but gentle. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, Jesus says, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that. He's speaking to an audience, a group of Jews who, if they were caught in some transgression, they would be shamed. They would be treated harshly. They would be condemned by their legalistic overlords, the Pharisees. And Jesus says, you need to do away with them, and you need to come and follow me. Gentleness, tenderness, these things are essential when dealing with a wayward believer. Why? Here's why. Because a man's whole future walk with Jesus Christ is at stake. What we say to the brother, what we say to the sister, how we approach him is extremely, extremely 
important. And then Paul says at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Here's why only the spiritual should do the restoration. Here's why. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul says some confusing things here, but here's what he means by this. The spiritual brother or sister in Christ, the one who recognizes his or her own weakness, realizes that today they may be restoring a fallen brother or sister, but next week they may be the one who has fallen and need to be restored. And so that's what he says here at the end of verse 1. You who are spiritual, you need to do this. You need to keep watch on yourselves unless you too be tempted. You guys need to make sure you know that you could be doing the restoration today and next week it could be you who needs the help. Now in verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love. I don't need to spend any more time on that because we're hungry and we want to eat. All right, just take my word for it. It's love. But the word burden, all right, this is an important word. This word means is baros, and it literally means or refers to a heavy stone. Something that was so heavy that one person could not or would not be expected to carry it by themselves. In the immediate context, it refers to those who have fallen into sin. In other words, those who have fallen should not be left alone. They should not be isolated. They should not be left to carry the burden of that sin, whatever it is, by themselves. Now, church, I am not suggesting that there is no consequence for our sin. There is always consequence for any sin. Whether you see the consequence or not, trust me, there is always a consequence. And when, when it comes to people in the community of the church, sometimes the consequence will be public. If it's a very public sin, the consequence should be public, you know, but the the consequence depends on the sin and the person who's committing the sin, whether or not, you know, they're a leader in the church or whatnot, but there are always, always, always consequences, and I'm not suggesting that there's not, but Paul here is speaking to those who would do the restoring, and he wants to make sure that they do it in the right way. He wants to make sure that they do it in a gentle way. And he wants to make sure that they come alongside those who have fallen and walk with them. Not to just say, hey, you're cast out of this family. We don't want anything more to do with you. There may come a time when that is appropriate if these people refuse to repent and recognize their sin. But until then, Paul says, you guys need to come alongside in a gentle way, walk with them, let them know you are here to help them. So always remember that. Then verse 3, he goes on, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, he's speaking to those who would practice harsh and cruel tactics of restoration. He's talking about the, the prideful people. Such people always have a much higher regard of themselves than they should. They think there's something super spiritual when in truth they're not. Then in verse 4 he says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Don't y'all just love Paul? Because what Paul just said there seems really confusing to me. Maybe it does to you. And if it's not confusing, at the very least, it it sounds as as if he's contradicting himself. Because he just told us to be humble And now he's telling us to boast in ourselves and not in our neighbors. What in the world, Paul? What are you talking about? Here's what he means. People who are spiritually prideful 
tend to make themselves feel superior to others. You know why? Because they tend to compare themselves to others. And if that's your measure of how well you're doing, you can always make yourself feel good. You can always find someone in a sadder lot than yourself. You can always say, well, I'm not like that adulterous woman down the street. If you're comparing yourself to others to make yourself feel good, you can always find someone in a sadder lot than yourself. Paul says here, very importantly, stop comparing yourself to others. Get busy examining your own walk with God. Ask yourself, am I walking in the Spirit? Am I killing the flesh? Am I cultivating the fruit of the Spirit? Stop looking at other people and examine your own walk. Until you examine your own spiritual walk, consistently and regularly, you have no right to examine the walk of someone else. Jesus said it this way. Jesus said you can't remove the beam that's protruding from your brother's eye, right? No, your eye, until you deal... Oh, I've totally messed it up this morning. I'm so hungry. Hey, y'all, Bob and Cheryl have been cooking down there since Monday. I've been waiting all week. Jesus said it this way, you cannot judge someone else's sin until you have first removed the two-by-four from your own eye. You can't go to take that little speck out of your brother's eye until you remove that big old plank that's protruding from your own eye. Paul's saying the very same thing right here. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Another perplexing statement. Another seemingly contradicting statement. Paul, what, what is going on? You just told us to bear one another's burdens. Now you say, each will bear his own load. What gives? What are you talking about? Well, you've got to understand the word for load is different from the word barren. Burden. The word for burden refers to something that cannot be carried by someone else. They need help. The word for load is the opposite. It refers to something that someone was expected to carry themselves, such as a soldier's, soldier's knapsack. Here's what one commentator says. There is one burden that we cannot share. One that is light enough for every man to carry himself. And that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, I cannot carry your backpack and you cannot carry mine. That's exactly what Paul is saying. So church, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Christ is not going to ask you how you compared to others. Rather, he's going to determine at that moment what you did with the grace that was given to you. And here's how all of this applies to this idea of restoring a brother who has fallen into sin. Jesus says it this way for his part in Luke chapter 6. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Judge not. He's not saying you can never judge, quote-unquote, someone else's sin, but that there's a right way to do it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. When Jesus says this, he's speaking to an audience who knows exactly what he's talking about. When you, when you would go to the grain market, in that society, in that culture, and you would go to the grain seller, you say, okay, I want this much grain. He would put the grain in this 
cup called a measure. He would put it in there, and then he would shake it, and then he would press it down, and he would continue that process until it's running over. And then whatever is running over at that point is then usually given to the, per- the person who's buying the grain. It would be placed in their, their apron like this because they, they wore robes and stuff like that. And so the, the stuff that is running over, would then the excess would be put in the apron. It's kind of like the French fries at Five Guys. You spend a million dollars on a hamburger and a cup of French fries. But then they're so nice and merciful and generous that they give you a little bit of extra in the bag. God's mercy is like that. And let me just tell you, God's mercy was purchased at a really, really expensive price. The death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says that the cup of God's mercy runs over in abundance. And if we have truly received his mercy, then we will likewise extend mercy in abundance. We will judge with mercy. That is the point. If you practice harsh, unmerciful judgment, then you can expect unmerciful judgment in return. If you judge with mercy, then you can expect merciful judgment on that day. Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's all that Paul is communicating right here. On the day of judgment, Jesus is not going to compare you to others. He's not. He's going to judge you on how you carried your own load, specifically how you stewarded the grace and the mercy that has been extended to you. Third and final item, Paul says, you want to keep in step with the Spirit? Here's one everyone loves. Paul says, be generous or give your money to the church. Verse 6, look at what he says. I'm not making it up. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So in the words of one commentator, Paul says, pay your pastor. That's what one commentator says. Now, I'm not up here with my hand out. You guys do this, all right? But obviously, the people in Galatians, they weren't doing it. They've got an issue, so they're, they're not paying their pastors. Then look at what Paul says in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now stay with me, beloved. It appears as if there's a problem in these churches of Galatia that in my view remains a problem today in many of our American churches. And don't tune me out just because I'm talking about money. Tune in. If you want to hear anything, hear this. There's a problem in these churches. Too many of them, according to Paul's words here, are more concerned with sowing to their flesh rather than sowing to the Spirit. In other words, rather than giving generously and appropriately to the church, Paul says they're spending more of their finances on their selfish, fleshly, worldly desires. Paul says they're they're sowing to the flesh rather than the Spirit when it comes to giving. They're giving their money and their time and their talents to things that lead to corruption rather than eternal life. Again, Jesus says it this way, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The old saying goes, you've probably heard it before, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what's important to you. I think that's a true statement. As Christians, as members of God's family, the church should be of utmost importance to us. The church should have priority really over everything that we are and everything that we do. The church should have priority over our time, our talents, and yes, over our finances. And sometimes, church, we need to remember that every nickel or penny that we earn in this lifetime is eventually going to be burned up. It will. In a great conflagration. But one thing in this world will not be destroyed. You know what it is? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why it should always be a priority for us as the people of God. Not, with just, not just with our finances, but yes, our finances for sure. He says in verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Some people grow weary in giving generously to the church, whether it's of your time, whether it's of your talents, or whether it's your finances. I totally get it. All right? Paul totally gets it too. And so that's why he says, don't grow weary in doing it. Stay the course, and in due time, you will reap the benefits. Hey, this is no Joel Osteen stuff right here. I just want to be clear. It's not, I'm going to give so that I, I get. No. I'm going to give because I've already received. And I've received something of eternal value. Something that money cannot buy. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And and so I just want to point out again that, that Paul points out the fact that the church is a family. And we are bound together by the blood of Christ. And we are a family, and our priority should therefore be the local church. And here's why. The local church is our first and primary family. This is the place where we find our identity. Your identity, beloved, is in Jesus Christ. It's not in your family blood. It's not in your work. It's not in your hobbies. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And you need to remember that. This is the place where we find our identity. This is the place where we find our security. This is the place where we find community. This is the place where we receive nurture and nourishment. When we are practicing gentle restoration, it should be. This is the place where we receive encouragement and support, benefit from teaching and theological training. Beloved, the church is God's plan A, not just for the world and taking the gospel to the ends of the world, but for God's people as well. That's why it's so important. Unfortunately, statistics show that 80% of American Christians give only 2% of their annual income to the church. I don't know if that's true or not. I have no idea. But that's what the statistics show. Now, some would say, you know, 10% is a, that's just kind of a baseline. God loves a cheerful giver. Some of us should give more than that, and some of us probably do. But 80% of American Christians give only 2% of their annual income to the church. So this should make us all pause and ask, myself included, 
But which kingdom am I trying to advance in this world? Is it my personal kingdom? Or is it the kingdom of God? Or when it comes to giving to the church, am I sowing to the flesh? Or am I sowing to the spirit? That's a good question, I think, for all of us to ask from time to time. So in summary, church, when I sow to the spirit, I will be humble, I will be merciful, and I will be generous in my giving to the church. And all God's people said, Father, thank you so much for your great grace, your wonderful love and mercy. Thank you that though you were rich, the Bible says, you became poor for our sake, that we might become rich, not materially, of course, but spiritually. That through your humility, we would receive forgiveness of our sin and the promise of everlasting life. A reward that will never burn up, that will never be destroyed. Father, help us to appreciate that truth. Every moment of every day, allow us to, to be reminded of that so that we would walk in humility always. That we would seek to restore our fallen brothers and sister, sisters with mercy and in gentleness that we would seek to come alongside them and help carry the burden, recognizing that we too might fall. Help us to be generous in giving of our time and our talents and, yes, our finances to your church, the church that you purchased with your very own blood. Father, I pray all of these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. This is a time of response. You can respond where you are. You can come up here to this altar and kneel and pray and respond. But make sure that you respond. If God is speaking to you in some way through the message or with the songs this morning, Please do not leave this place without responding appropriately, whatever it is. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've never received the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that comes with it, I would implore you, I would beg you to make that decision today as well. I would love to pray with you and to be with you as, as you begin that journey. Whatever it is that's on your heart, I would invite you to come.